Welcome to Media Lit, where we treat every piece of media like great literature. I'm your host, Randy Elaine, and joining me today to talk about a piece of media that means something to him is Chris Ingersoll. Chris is a fellow nerd, as well as an actor and voice actor. In preparation for our conversation today, Chris asked me to go back and rewatch 1992's Batman Returns, which it turns out I had not done in quite some time. Uh, but it was quite a ride. I had a phenomenal time. Chris, thank you for that homework assignment. Welcome to the podcast, and thank you for joining me today. Randy, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you going back and taking a rewatch of the 1992 classic. I am stoked to talk about it. Absolutely. Now, uh, anyone listening to the podcast will not be able to enjoy what I'm looking at right now, which is a real-life bat signal projected to the wall behind you. Coming into this recording, I assumed you did that for me out of kindness, but you're telling me this is just your standard living room setup? This is the standard motif of the Ingersoll household uh, 24-7. I've got a very supportive wife who does not uh, mind the signal constantly shining. You never know when danger is afoot. You got to be ready. Uh, I mean, Batman is definitely a love language. If there's one thing I learned from, re from rewatching this movie, it's that. Um, so, Chris, level with me. Do you own a bat suit? I own more than one bat suit. I've even got a handful of actual batarangs. Now, are they programmable batarangs? <laughs> Un unfortunately, the RC technology didn't quite keep up with the ambitions of the bat. <laughs> You know, the, the battering in and of itself is is a deadly and useful weapon. Uh, before we get into a more serious part of the conversation, I've just got to ask, as someone who owns multiple bat suits, uh, who's worn them, uh, I know from your uh, profile picture on our shared Slack uh, that you can pull off the Batman cowl. So as an expert in all this, I've got to ask you, uh, how would you rate Michael Keaton's jawline in comparison to these other Batman? Because that's such a big part of the role. It's, it's a big part of it. And, you know, I almost feel a <laughs> sense of loyalty that makes me want to overhype the chin on Michael Keaton, but on chin alone, he's not our strongest Batman. Uh, ah, I think he cuts, okay. he cuts a striking figure in the Cape and cowl for other reasons. Awesome. I can't wait to get into those a little bit later. Uh, but this show is really about, you know, not just that this film is a classic, not just that it's a great time, uh, but what we're trying to get at here is why do certain pieces of media really mean something to us? So what is it that draws you to this film? Uh, why was this something that you really wanted to assign for homework coming onto this podcast? Uh, what's the story here? Yeah, you know, I was really glad when you asked about a piece of media that might mean something to me, because as we've established, I'm a, I'm a huge Bat fan, but it goes, it goes beyond just a love of the media. You know, there's a uh, something about the character that I've always really clung to, something that's resonated with me. And it started right here. I was in preschool when this movie came out, but it's one of my mm. earliest memories. Uh, the whole media push, the the McDonald's toys, the soundtracks, all the advertisements. But it was kind of a part of a, a trifecta, right? We had this movie came mm. out. Mm -hmm. Shor shortly thereafter, Batman, the animated series, was a huge part of my childhood. You had the Kenner toys. Some of those reflected the animated series. Some of those Kenner toys reflected the Batman Returns aesthetic. And so this film was just a, 
a spark that ignited in me a love for the Dark Knight. I really quickly identified him as the kind of hero that was for me. He's a little grim. He's a little dark. He's certainly not mm-hmm. Superman. He's no Boy Scout. And so this movie has uh, captured my imagination really, really early. What about you? Did this movie, uh, was it a part of your childhood or something you came to later in life? So I'm going to say it's both for me. On on the one hand, I've got some of those same memories that you mentioned, the toys, the marketing. Uh, to this day, I have uh, that McDonald's Batmobile uh, from this film where you could press a little button on the back of the Batmobile and the front would just kind of shoot out and roll away separately. Um, I think that's them trying to recreate that moment in the film where, like, you get that one uh, narrowed in version of the Batmobile, you know, cutting through a a narrow space at the last second. Uh, It's a really fun toy. That mechanism has not lost anything in the decades since this film came out. Uh, Really awesome there. Um, Somewhere buried in time, possibly even in my attic upstairs, um, I have like the larger scale uh, Batman Batmobile from this era, which was a really phenomenal toy. Um, and there was a Christmas, uh, I don't remember the exact year, presumably it, it was maybe 1992, just after this film came out a few months later, because this was wildly a summer release, despite all the Christmas in this movie. Did you remember that? No, not really. I mean, uh, I think for me, th- I probably didn't see the movie until at least a year after it's out on VHS. My parents are irresponsible with what they allow me to watch. And so I was probably able to see this by the time I was four, but no, I have no memory of it being a summer release to your point for me. This is a winter film, although it makes sense. Big, summer, big summer blockbuster, classic uh, studio timeline. I can see it. But yeah, but I mean, it was a vibe. Uh, I am positive. My parents did not let me go see this movie at the time. Uh, but, you know, I think my parents, you know, normally when people tell this story, it's a connection with their dad. Uh, and I had a phenomenal relationship with my dad. Uh, but it was my mom who brought me a lot more nerd culture. So, you know, she had like a VHS of like the old Adam West movie. And I would watch that a lot. Um, I have one of those lingering young childhood memories of this puzzle I used to do with a bunch of DC villains. I didn't own a single comic book. I had no idea what they were. But like I, I can still physically remember just puzzling that thing together and seeing these these strange figures come to life, and some of them looked a little bit familiar from from all these different movies. Uh, but yeah, uh, I said it was both a childhood memory and a more recent thing because when I finally did get around to this movie, um, it was incredibly striking. I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about the style of this movie today. But I also just love how front and center its exploration of villains is from start to finish in this film. Um, you go to a Batman movie expecting it to be about Batman, but really we're getting into duality. And I really love that in literature, film, music, you name it. I love looking at these uh, complex portraits um, of anti-heroes, of villains, all those things. So the fact that this movie is so devoted to it uh, means it's always going to be special to me. Uh, I love that. I think I, I agree with you. And I think it's probably to the film's benefit that it chooses to give that that focus on the villains. I think for me, Batman's always most interesting when you're examining him through the lens of those villains. Uh, 
there's a lot of interesting avenues to explore. He's a complicated character and often different facets of the Batman are reflected back at him uh, in the mad cat villains that he goes up against. Absolutely. Now, I've got a whole host of questions prepared for us. Uh, classes in session, but I think before we dig deeper into this film, I'm going to do a quick recap of what happens in this film because, you know, we may not all have time for a rewatch. Uh, so, Chris, your job, when I am done, you've got to call me out for any important stuff that I missed or passed over too quickly. Uh, or if you think I got any of it wrong, I would love to hear you weigh in. But uh, here is my recollection of Batman Returns from my recent rewatch. Oswald Cobblepot is abandoned by his wealthy parents after they reject him for his unusual appearance and his hunger for live kittens, apparently. 33 years later, Oswald has taken on the identity of the Penguin, and he blackmails industrialist Max Streck to help him reclaim his social status. They join forces in Penguin's bid for mayor. When Shrek's assistant, Selina Kyle, uncovers his plot to hoard Gotham's electricity with his new power plant, he pushes her out of a window. Selina survives and bonds with a host of stray cats, marking her transformation into Catwoman. She clashes with Batman as she seeks vengeance against Shrek and sinks into her new persona. She forms a fragile alliance with the Penguin to frame Batman and destroy his heroic public image. It fails, and Batman quickly disrupts Penguin's bid for mayor. Meanwhile, Selina and Bruce Wayne develop a magnetic romantic chemistry that can't quite cut through their dark secrets. For a moment, it seems like they might forge a healthy human connection, but Penguin literally crashes in to take revenge on the firstborn children of Gotham. In the end, they clash with Penguin and Shrek. Batman is unable to dissuade Catwoman from murder. And it seems like she may have been killed in the destruction of Penguin's lair after hitting Shrek with a deadly kiss. As the film closes on a final bat signal, Catwoman rises into frame, promising a sequel that we never got, which is a shame. Uh, how'd I do, Chris? Randy, that was beautiful. I don't know if you could see me smiling throughout, but uh, I love this movie so much. And you you did it justice as you hit each beat. Uh, I was reflecting fondly, so you nailed it. I was certainly looking at your smiling face and not staring intently at my prepared summary. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, all right. So we kind of already got to why this movie means so much to you. Um, you did hint about how this film is a, a really big part of your childhood. You remember the toys. Um, but I wanted to see if there's any more ground we can uncover there. Do you have any like really particular early memories that you can tie to this film or maybe a memory of, of playing with one of those toys or anything like that that comes to mind? Yeah, yeah, actually I do. And it's a little embarrassing. It's not entirely embarrassing. But when you're a kid, you know very little about the world. Your world is is quite small. Uh, and each new element that is introduced into it, you assume fits somehow into the world you already know. Um, I had a, a really good friend in preschool. Shout out to Eddie Pfeiffer, wherever you are. Hope you're doing hey, well. Hey, Eddie. So Eddie Pfeiffer was my, my preschool best pal. I remember a very specific play date in Eddie Pfeiffer's driveway. We were playing with our McDonald's Happy Meal toys, which we had just gotten. I can see the penguin mm. umbrella spinning in front of his little penguin mobile. Nice, and nice. 
our conversation came around to the movie that was coming out. Now, I had heard from my mom. She was excited about it because Michelle Pfeiffer was playing Catwoman. My best friend is Eddie Pfeiffer. Mm-hmm. I, was cer- I was certain his mom must, in fact, be the Michelle Pfeiffer who was playing Catwoman of course. Of in the course. movie. Certain. She was vaguely blonde. <laughs> I have no idea what she looks like to this day. I know Eddie was a blonde kid. <laughs> yep, yep. But I was convinced, and I repeated that to people who I knew. Granted, I didn't know a lot of people. I was four. But I was certain my best pal's mom was the Catwoman. The Catwoman. That's phenomenal. Um, that's much more fun than than my memory. Now, listen, my, my family growing up happened to, you know, celebrate Christmas. I've got two younger sisters. And, uh, you know, we're, we're a pretty well-behaved bunch, uh, you know, Known for being pretty calm, pretty chill. Uh, you know, that went all the way up through high school. When I graduated from high school, I uh, I earned the the title of class angel. Uh, but for some reason, in 1992, on Christmas morning, all hell broke loose in, uh, in my family home. Uh, I got the Batmobile. I got a Batman toy. Uh, I think there may have been a... I feel like I may have, I feel like there's a Robin toy for some reason, although Robin is not featured in this particular film. Um, one of my sisters got this large, beautiful dollhouse to play with. Um, and like before all the presents were unwrapped, uh, we had pretty much destroyed this dollhouse. Cause I had Batman like scaling the walls, like climbing up the side. I think I managed to accidentally like yank a window out and this all culminated and my other sister, like somehow sitting on top of the entire dollhouse and and breaking it. Um, I don't think it was totaled, but I don't think it was ever quite back in the same shape it was meant to be. So I've I've no idea what was in the water that day. Uh, but I do I do think of that every time I think of Batman or Batman toys. Um, I don't think we ever had quite so many fireworks again after that. But but yeah, some something that day uh, will stick with me forever. Really fantastic. Something about the bat just gets into you. So Batman Returns. Uh, is this Christmas movie? Uh, I know that you rewatch this film regularly. Do you rewatch it at Christmas time? It is a mandatory rewatch at Christmas every year. This is, in my opinion, undeniably a Christmas movie. It's not just set at Christmas. Uh, Christmas is a significant part of the plot, right? We open on the big gift-giving sequence, Max Shrek doing his best scummy Donald Trump impression as he hands out presents and pretends to be a philanthropist, right? You have uh, the famous line about mistletoe. And if that alone doesn't sell as a Christmas <laughs> movie, I don't know what does. Mistletoe can be deadly if you eat it. But a kiss can be deadlier if you mean it. Amen. Uh, and so, Merry Christmas. And one thing I love about this performance is like, yes, it's this very broad caricature of a business person. Uh, You've got this one very forward looking line. Like, I think maybe one of my biggest laughs in the entire movie outside of things Danny DeVito was doing uh, is when Shrek finally realizes that Selena is Catwoman. Uh, He's got like Catwoman and Batman staring him down. And his response is, you're fired. (laughs) And uh, that that kind of killed me because what what a reaction in that moment. But listen, we, we've seen that caricature 
a zillion times. We'll see it a zillion more times. It can be fun. We've also seen that character uh, with a family, with a son. We've seen plenty of idiot sons to to rich business moguls. Um, And usually that's the joke. But something I had kind of forgotten about this film until my most recent rewatch is like Max loves his son, Chip. He just loves his big, doofy, idiot son so much. Uh, Staring down the penguin, he says, if you have an iota of human feeling, take me instead. And he's being genuine. And I love that about this movie. (laughs) It's so interesting that you highlight that because I wasn't sure how Chip would make his way into the conversation today. (laughs) But on my most recent rewatch, I was really moved. Like, you know, Shrek... His whole uh, uh, capacitor plan, his his idea of of sucking power from Gotham so we can sell it back to them, is all for his boy. He said, "This is my legacy. This is what I'm leaving for my son." Uh, and then, yeah, he throws himself in front of the penguin. He wants to sacrifice himself for Chip. Before that, I noticed in the office <laughs> you have the, the classic portrait of mm-hmm. the, the business mogul, right? It's a hand painted portrait of Shrek, but it's not just. Max Shrek. There's this big, beautiful, bulky boy leaning right over him in the same oil painting. And I was kind of moved. Like, my goodness, this this bad guy has a little bit of heart. There's actually some dimension to him beyond the uh, mustache twirling businessman villain. Um, I don't know where they cast this Stallone impressionist uh, that is Chip. His, he's He's great. Yeah. And he similarly needs his dad too. you know, he's like cowering back into his arms with a threat. He's got his little crown on at the party. It, it's touching. It's heartwarming. Uh, and, you know, speaking of heartwarming, this question of Christmas got me to think about another moment a little bit differently. Now, you know, if you are someone a little bit younger listening to this podcast and you've maybe seen a lot of superhero fare uh, in the last 10 or 15 years, Uh, Going back to watch a film like this could be a little bit weird because, you know, I love the film, but it's often very silly. It's often very goofy. It often feels a little bit like a comic book more so than a really serious movie. And 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 one thing I used to be kind of cynical about was uh, Penguin's quick rise to popularity in Gotham is from this very clearly staged rescue of the mayor's baby. Uh, you know, like being attacked by by gangsters and then Penguin dramatically rises out of the sewers with the baby. And that just convinces all of Gotham. And, you know, you could call that a dumb plot point uh, or you could call it like the Grinch, uh, where all the who's in Whoville are willing to just fully love the Grinch with their full heart. at even before he shows even the tiniest sign of kindness and you know, this guy rises out of the sewers. Uh, his teeth are black. They're formed into fangs. Uh, he certainly does not have a traditional body type. And a lesser populace might draw a lot of negative distinctions and be scared. But they are willing to welcome this man and love him with open arms. And, I mean, just real shout out to the loving people of Gotham. Even as they're being attacked by clowns in the street day after day, they, they just have love in their heart for this man. And it warms my heart. You know, I really love that because we have to believe that the Batman is fighting for something, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Batman Batman doesn't have a lot of motivation in these two Keaton movies. He just cares about being Batman and taking care of his city. 
So what's he taking care of? And it's apparently these big hearted people who did believe the penguin was a monster when he was just myth, when he was mm-hmm. just something in the newspapers, a boogeyman that you heard about. But my gosh, here he is holding a baby. How can you dislike a nice guy holding a baby, says the people of Gotham. And I like that about them. Yeah, he's like a frog prince, you might say. I loved that line. I think that you were dead on to say that it's um, <laughs> a bit silly at times, right? I think I made the note, um, gothic camp, <laughs> right? It's very campy. Mm-hmm. I mean, Max Shrek is able to lure the penguin down to his campaign launch with a fish. I forgot about that one. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it becomes like a, like a rabid animal for a moment. He no longer has any agency as a human in the face of a raw wriggling fish. Uh, we're we're almost ready to transition out of like like the direct nostalgia and reflective portion of this podcast into just really digging into the movie itself. Uh, but I do want to ask you a, a transition question because we are here to celebrate this movie. We both love it. It's a great one. Uh, and even though we love it, though, uh, we want to look at everything critically. Uh, so looking back at this movie, does it have any flaws that stand out to you? I, I think we should both just get those out of the way now so that we can then just, just dig into to loving this film. Yeah. I mean, if I can be honest and with a critical eye, all the camp, the silliness, it works. For me. <laughs> it isn't, it isn't that stuff that I really would yep. complain about. It's not subtle, um, in its plot or in its themes, but that's okay. That works. What doesn't work, um, is a, is a lot of the Penguin's character. A lot of his yeah. humor, his general demeanor towards women just simply does not hold up in 2023. I think all that you are seeking to achieve in his character could be more thoughtfully curated today than maybe the screenwriters were doing back then. Um, a few of his innuendos are more direct than that. He outright gropes a young woman Um Certainly doesn't hold up in that regard. Uh, I could go on, but do you care to comment? Yeah, I I think we're coming at this one from the same angle, Chris, because I'm with you. The the camp is fun. It's built in. It's this just this incredible era where where Tim Burton was bringing us hit after hit. Um, I I don't know if anyone's ever had a higher high in their filmmaking career than like this run Tim Burton is on in the early 90s. Um, and yeah, almost all of those decisions work for me. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's the language, you know, it's one thing to say a film hasn't aged well. Um, but just these, these incredibly obvious come ons from the penguin, they're just so excessive. They're so endless. If you didn't need to be told, it certainly confirms that there were too many like male eyes on this script, uh, perhaps. Uh, and, you know, we can dismiss, we can certainly dismiss some of that uh, as, you know, being part of the time period. Hopefully we've grown and we're looking at things more carefully. Uh, we can dismiss some of that as this is a villainous character who we are not supposed to trust or be rooting for. Um, you know, so you, you could argue we're certainly not trying to celebrate that attitude. I suspect we are both going to be singing the praises of Michelle Pfeiffer today. Um, but, you know. Catwoman on the page without the right performance could have been nothing more than like a weird, creepy male gaze thing. And I think Michelle Pfeiffer like is able to transcend what's on the page and make it this really special, special performance. Yeah, I completely agree. And you're, you're so wise to call out uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's like enlivening of that character, right? If she didn't, if you didn't believe her, none of it really works, but 
There's one other flaw for me, and it isn't a filmmaking flaw. It isn't necessarily uh, to do with production value or anything else. I personally have a hard time with a Batman who very clearly kills. Mm. Didn't care at the time. The more I have grown into a love of Batman for some of his ethics, his values, the way he conducts himself as a hero. Batman, in the face of a very large circus strongman, sticks a big old chunk of dynamite right in his belt and then knocks him down a hole. And then there's an explosion. It's just one example of the many ways in which Batman's tactics most certainly lead to the direct death of a number of the uh, poor afflicted folks that he is beating mercilessly. Um, I I believe that Keaton gives beatings and I support him in doing so. you got to mm-hmm. stop crime where it stands. But I don't think uh, we need a Batman who so blatantly has no regard for the folks that he's up against. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think that's a great observation. I probably undersold it to an extent because there is a flaw in the storytelling there because when it's an important plot point, like asking Selena to spare Shrek at the end, right? Mm-hmm. Or saving saving the Joker in the first Keaton movie. When it's an important plot point, it's there in the character that he doesn't kill, that he values life. Um, it's just treated a little bit irreverently throughout when it's a lesser plot point, when it's just a part of a big action sequence. So that's a bit of a, a failing in my opinion. All right, are you, are you ready to just share our unbridled love for this film now? Let's do it. All right, this is awesome. All right, so I, I alluded to this earlier. My favorite thing about Batman Returns, personally, uh, is just this focus on the the villains, the antiheroes, whatever you want to call them. We've got some complicated things going on. Um, how do you feel about the fact that this movie takes Catwoman and the Penguin and puts them front and center the whole opening credits and sequence are devoted to the Penguin's backstory. How do you feel about that? You know, it is uh, surprising to watch a Batman movie where for the first 15 minutes, there's not even a mention of a Batman. I think probably early moviegoers were deceived when the film opened on uh, a rich family, a mansion somewhere. I think you expected perhaps you were seeing some other version of Batman's origin. But instead, you get the contrast. Here's the origin of a monster. Here's the origin of your villain. And actually, in that way, this film fits into a really great tradition of Batman movies that put the emphasis on the villain in order to more deeply explore the Batman, his psyche, and how this human being can make these choices and embody this character every day. Um, One of the reasons I love Batman is because Batman's a choice. Superman wakes up every day, and he's Superman. What he does Mm -hmm. with being Superman is up to him, but he is Superman. Batman's a choice. Every day he could wake up and be something else entirely. But he takes his trauma, he takes his pain, and he chooses this, this grim goodness, right? Immediately you get the contrast origin story of the Penguin. Rich Mm -hmm. loses his parents a different way. But he goes a very completely different way in the face of his trauma. You highlighted in your brilliant summary of the film that the Penguin's main plot before Shrek, before Mayer, his intention is to take revenge on the firstborn Mm -hmm. children of all Gotham. He suffered, and now they will suffer. Batman suffered, and now no one else will suffer. And that's so much more richly portrayed through the contrast than by simply trying to show that in Batman. 
So I love the emphasis on the villains. I think I could go on further about Catwoman, but for the same reasons, um, I think it works. What about you? Yeah, uh, I think both the performances are really excellent. I love this connection we get between Catwoman, Batman, and the Penguin. You know, you look at the poster for this film, you've got like their three faces. They're almost in this little column with like Batman and the cowl up top. Uh, and they've all got these sort of dual identities. Um, I love how you pointed out the similarities in the Penguin's backstory and Batman's backstory. Um, and like the difference between success and failure for these two guys might, might just partially be, uh, are they meeting all the check marks that society expects of them? You know, Bruce Wayne, that, that you know, uh, a, a young normal kid growing up into a handsome man, throwing this fortune around looking good in a suit, uh, hanging out at the mansion. He looks the part. Um, Selena Kyle, we get these little hints that, you know, she's not very confident at the beginning, but we know that she has intelligence. We know she has skills. She uncovers this whole plot that Shrek has going on without even really trying. Um, I just rewatched the scene and it really uh, stood out to me that uh, a guy she's been dating, it sounds like she beat him at racquetball and now, now he's being a jerk. Uh, you know, right? Because she's got some skills, some empowerment. She keeps feeling uh, like punished every time she does something well or states an opinion. So, like, you understand what she's got to overcome it. So, yeah, all the all these dual personalities coming together and putting the villains up front forces you to look at Batman that way. Um, and and then you know something any Batman fan has done now because you had those very successful Christopher Nolan films that you know found like the, the most grim, dark way possible to explore that. And I love those films as well. Um, but yeah, this was, this was something really special and, and new, at least for, for the screen when it comes to Batman. A absolutely. And I think um, you need these villains because Batman himself, I highlighted earlier, he's fairly violent. He's taking actions that at least maim, if not kill people. So what makes him a hero, right? And it's in mm -hmm. the small, it's in the small choices. Selena Kyle, to your point, we see her as a relatively normal person. She has some skills. She seems to have a bit of moral guidance as she uncovers mm -hmm. that idea of Shrek's plot. And she cares to question it at all, despite her own safety. Uh, but then tragedy strikes, right? Then she's mm -hmm. murdered. And she'll say later, life's a bitch. Now so am I. Right? So in the face of that trauma, she chooses, she chooses to embrace it. And she goes dark. So when we see her, uh, we see her make her suit. But the first appearance of Catwoman in action is later, during the riot. Catwoman's in an alley. And the first thing you see her do is stop a mugging. She does exactly what Batman does. Mm -hmm. And she does it in a way Batman might have done it. She messes that guy's face up pretty good. There's blood. She sends him packing. But then she doesn't reassure the mugged. She has a really tough message for that woman as well, right? Head against the brick. You make it so easy for them, don't you? waiting for some Batman. Mm -hmm. So, so Catwoman has become some vision of, of female strength and empowerment, but with a much darker edge than uh, Batman has become any symbol of heroism or what have you. Absolutely. Now, Chris, please jump in and correct me if I'm wrong. I, I was going to ask you like next, if, if you thought one of these villain performances stands out over the other, I think we both spent some time talking about some things we really love about Danny DeVito and the penguin uh, it's it's a ton of fun. He goes for it. He's game for everything Tim Burton uh, 
wants him to do. But I'm sensing that we are probably both going to argue that that Catwoman is the most successful villain performance and probably the most successful performance in the movie overall. I think it's safe to say. Uh, and uh, if if you do, in fact, agree with me, uh, if I'm putting words in your mouth, let me know. Uh, you you just started to answer this, but is there anything else you want to say about what Michelle Pfeiffer is doing in this film that's so special as Catwoman? I mean, so I agree. First and foremost, you put no yeah. words in my mouth. She <laughs> is the strongest performance in the film. And it's it's a sense of ownership, right? As an actor, you talk about being in your body, right? Mm-hmm. Every ounce of her transforms when Selena Kyle transforms. It's one of my favorite scenes, if not my favorite scene in the movie. It's a place mm-hmm. where... During a rewatch, a casual rewatch, I can often just stop the movie, get to that point, and then I'm watching her smash the neon to say, hell, mm. here, rather than hello, there. The transformation is mm-hmm. complete. That's often enough for me because that sequence, my gosh, that could be a short film, just watching her come home and listen to her messages and absolutely unravel in the face of uh, an advertisement, right? Something trying to sell her a perfume. I forget what the product is, but... The shtick of the commercial is your boss will invite you to a stay late for a candlelit dinner. And she just loses it. And that actress went to a weird place, man, a really, really weird place in such a powerful way. So then when you see her later skipping through a department store in full Catwoman garb, none of it seems silly. None of it seems unbelievable. It all feels perfectly believable in that world at that time. Every choice she makes um, is really brilliantly sold. And I think it's in how much Michelle Pfeiffer believed it. She just really chose to, yeah. to go for it. You know, I love that you brought up that the message on her machine that's like that direct-to-telephone advertisement for the perfume. Because uh, I just rewatched this like right before I, I hopped on this call with you. And uh, you described it exactly right. But it's, in fact, an ad for... Uh, a perfume sold by Max Shrek. Like it's specifically coming from his company, right? So he's just pushed her out a window. You know, they they had that late night meeting, which ended in a, a murder or murder attempt, depending on how you want to read what happened uh, to Selena when she hit the ground out there. That rage comes through. It just, <laughs> it really comes to life. It's unbelievable. Uh, do you know the story about the the mannequins and the whip, the behind the scenes story? I don't think I do. What's the what's the story? Well, you'll notice it's a wide shot. Mm-hmm. Right? We see her skipping through. It's a wide shot as she gets ready with her whip. Michelle Pfeiffer nailed that. One take. Wa-pow, head pops off. Wa-pow, head pops off. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's that point of embodying the character and really owning the physicality of Catwoman. Michelle Pfeiffer was ready to perform. She struck the head of each mannequin with the end of those whips. And then what does she say to those officers uh silly boys always confusing your pistols with your privates she's just the, the picture <laughs> yep. of of uh femme fatale it's fantastic yeah it's it's beautiful stuff um i was also going to speak about it, it's hard not to speak about those back those almost back-to-back sequences of selena returns home has her transformation then returns home again uh and something that something else that struck me on this rewatch is during the the first walkthrough when we've got original selena um, you know, she's got the cat, Miss Kitty comes in through the window. We get the sense this is a routine. Uh, and I really stopped to reflect on how she's talking out loud 
to Miss Kitty, just just addressing her, having this dialogue. Uh, there's this comment about maybe you should help out around the house if you weren't just going out all the time. Uh, and you really think about this this split that she has, this persona she takes on of the Catwoman. It just it gets even deeper into the emotional center of it to, to think like that's been her healthiest maybe uh, interaction she's had with another living being recently uh, is with that cat that pops in her window at night. And she almost wants to be that cat. Yeah. I mean, maybe that cat lives a more secure, free and by a secure, I mean, confident life than she herself does. But it's interesting you point that out because something stood out to me in my most recent rewatch was not only the presence of the cats in her life beforehand, she clearly has an affinity for them. They come to her when she falls. Mm -hmm. But Max Shrek's corporate uh, logo is a big, grinning cat face. And so it's both a a comforting part of her her pre-changed life uh, and a very significant uh, icon of her trauma. So interesting that both live there in her transformed, empowered self. I I don't think we've heard the last of Michelle Pfeiffer. I, I, we're I'm going to try to step away for a minute, but I think as we go through the rest of these questions, I don't think we've said the last things we're going to say about her performance for the day. Um, but I do want to I do want to step out of performance for a minute because obviously we love the story, we love the villains, we love the camp, we love all this stuff about the film. Uh, but we probably still wouldn't love it as much as we did if it just didn't look so damn beautiful. Uh, there's just incredible art direction on this film. So much incredible cinematography. Um, you know, feel free to dig down into any of those directions, sets, costumes, shot composition, uh, whatever. Do you have any particular favorite elements that just just jump out to you? Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, it really is. Uh, it's in the sets. Right, because he's the king of miniatures, and so every bit feels so fully realized down to the last detail. Um, the way a city can transform at Christmas time is uh, unique to each city. Right, Christmas in New York looks a really specific way, mm-hmm. and I'm sure Christmas. I've never been to LA, but I bet Christmas in LA, LA looks a very specific way as well. Uh, that's unique. Christmas in Gotham, as rendered in this <laughs> film is haunting and beautiful, right? Every bit of the gothic Gotham that Tim Burton realized in the first movie, the really big, strange statues, Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, sort of noir vibe of the vehicles and the buildings, and then sprinkled in is the most perfect take on Christmas for that world. Big, Mm -hmm. gaudy, over-the-top decorations, right? Um, Absolute magic at your fingertips. I love the way this movie just looks and feels and then there's the the smaller sets the individual places like the villain layers penguins sewer layer that is grimy is mm-hmm. abs- absolutely reflective of his character and likewise catwoman's villain layer when she's selena it's this disgusting sickly sweet almost uh dare i say dolores umbridge level of <laughs> sickly sweet pink and dolls Mm -hmm. and then she has to transform that space to suit her new persona right black spray paint broken neon shattered glass it all helps to tell 
uh, or translate the characters to the screen. Um, I absolutely love the sets in this film. What about you? Yeah, they're they're beautiful. Uh, you know, I'm I'm gonna stray from my own question for a second because just hearing you talk about that apartment just reminded me that I really wanted to talk about in uh, that Selena sequence with the apartment when she trashes it. Uh, you know, no one since Charles Foster Kane in Citizen Kane has Ooh. has trashed a room with the same sort of just unhinged energy. Uh, and and you know i'm not just saying that to be cute that's the main film reference that comes to mind when i watch that she's got you know she adds some spray paint into the mix but crushing mirrors like taking a spoon to jam every little stuffed animal uh down the sink and just crush it uh it it's some really fun stuff um it's <laughs> it's it's brilliant i mean the the tongue out as she's doing it. Uh, similarly, when she's inserting her costume, there's this crazed lean back tongue action. Yeah. It's just unhinged is the word. Absolutely unhinged. And spilled yeah. milk. I despise spilled milk. And <laughs> for me, if you if you want to illustrate chaos, show me somebody just willy-nilly smashing milk bottles. That's enough to tell me that yeah. person has gone off the deep end. It's over for yeah. them. Yeah, and and you already and getting back to my question, like you already spoke to the, like the really incredible uh, neon sign, the hell here, you know that shot when we get our first, you know, sort of like long shot of Catwoman with the the hell here, you know, up to this point she's been sort of like hobbling around in her apartment because she was dropped from a window, you know, uh, fair enough, but yeah, she goes straight into those cat like movements. Everything is slow, agile, careful. Um, you know, I, I don't think anyone needs me to articulate why society will probably never forget Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman costume. Uh, but of course, Penguin's got some incredible art design as well. You've got the prosthetics on on the face. Um, and just... You know, I'm I will always and everything love Danny DeVito for just fully embracing who he is and bringing his own unique physicality to role after role. So like the, the way they paired all of the the makeup and costume mm. uh, with the actors and actresses are incredible. Um, now, I, I think I want to shift this to to shots a little bit, like some of yeah. the some of the artistic composition. Do you have a, a favorite shot or two in this film that that really stands out to you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think uh, for me, the shot is first appearance of the Batman. It's a full 13 minutes into the movie. You finally hear Commissioner Gordon say, what are you waiting for? Turn on the signal. And then that bat, that bat light hits the sky. And I love the way Tim Burton renders that bat symbol. It's, uh, it's a little long. It's a little mm -hmm. more oblong than your traditional bat symbol. It's not so oval. And then the mirrors that shot of the light going mirror to yes. mirror to mirror and then hitting the back wall of the parlor that, that Bruce is sitting in or whatever absurd room of his absurd manner he's sitting in <laughs> and he turns into the light. And I know earlier I, I uh, spoke ill of his chin, of his jawline in the column, <laughs> but in that moment, no suit, no cape, no cowl. He is so Batman as he turns into that signal, turns into that light raises his chin and looks to the sky. It's a beautiful mm -hmm. shot and it absolutely sets the tone for the character. 
Yeah, one million percent. That's that's an incredible one. That's definitely on my list of shots. Um, I think the one I decided to put at the top of my list is just we're we're toward the end of the movie. We've had the first of a couple final climactic encounters with the penguin. Um, the the penguins and their rockets have turned on him. The, the layer's partially destroyed. We've seen penguin crash down through a window. Uh, we we cut to some Batman and Selena Kyle stuff for a while. Uh, but that shot where you've got some debris on fire in the water um, and then penguin rises up out of the water back into the frame. He's leaking that like oil, inky black blood or bile from his face. And it's a really striking shot. And like, yes, this movie can be campy, but like it, it looks scary um, and serious and intense. And it, it's kind of burned into my brain. It's such an incredible shot. And it's the kind of shot that like, you're not necessarily used to seeing a Danny DeVito pull off, you know, someone coming up memorably out of the water and the look in his eyes, the stare into the camera, the guy who's been eating raw fish and and going method and playing the penguin. And like, it's almost all concentrated down into its purest form in that shot. Such an incredible piece of work there. Yeah. And why is his blood black? What is going on with that? It's <laughs> absolutely horrifying. Um, yeah. I think that you're right to highlight that because that works so much better than I think the Max Shrek death sequence. Sure. Yeah. I, I I love the choices that Selena makes. I love the idea of that death being that that mutual tasing, um, mm-hmm. taking it all the way to burnt to a crisp uh, skeleton. I think was just it was a touch over the top. That 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 shot really did work. I am glad you mentioned the the Danny DeVito uh, penguin sort of icon shot because my other favorite shot of the film is so simple. It's so brief. You highlighted it in the recap. The Catwoman hero shot at the end it's not a villain shot really she stands up into the light it's almost her own version of that same batman shot from the beginning right the film really ends um almost like it's her movie it's a really beautiful finish as she rises up into cut a crazy silhouette against the night sky yeah goodwill toward men and women Mm -hmm. right man i i regret not mentioning during the sets but the penguin posters for his mayoral campaign Mm. those were such a part of the uh marketing for the film and of the art for the film that came out in and around it um i remember being really intoxicated by that as a kid the colors the lines it's really beautiful art style that that uh new modern art style but i think a big part of that is what deceived uh studios fellow Mm -hmm. marketers and fans into thinking this movie was going to have a totally different vibe than it ultimately had on screen. Um, in the world, those posters are a total contrast. It's a similar noir vibe to the design, but the colors at at work are uh, of another world. And so they really stand out. Yeah, absolutely. And like, it, it's one of the millions of ways that Gotham feels so timeless in this movie. Um, you know, even the moments where we have the outdated technology, it's still put into such cool designs for, for like the Batmobile and everything else. Uh, it really works. And, and you know, I don't feel so much like this is locked to a certain time period. Like, I don't feel like this is a movie you can only watch 
uh, in the nineties, you know, even if it's got some clear call signs to that moment, like even the, the auto battering, you know, it's got some simple graphics on it. Like that looks a lot better than, than a lot of uh, sequences from 1992 that you can go back and take a look at now. Like they really blended those, those classic looks with some of this light tech and, and inside of this gritty snow globe of an inky Gotham, like it, it really hits. I think that RC, I called it an RC bat battering earlier, looks yeah, better yeah, than yeah. some some shots today. I think practical effects are often um, just more satisfying. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I think that that, that works perfectly well. Um, and nothing about the plot would be undermined by the existence of cell phones. I think that's an important litmus test for how well a movie yeah. uh, holds up today, if it's timeless or not. Um, with the simple introduction of a smartphone, completely unraveled this plot and all of the plot tension. And that's not the case in Batman Returns. Film still totally works if Batman's got a smartphone. Yeah, absolutely. As we're moving forward, feel free to smuggle in any references to to art direction and set design that you want. Um, You know, I I don't think I gave a proper shout out just to like, just the inky blackness of all of Gotham. Some of just some of like those great, you know, I think sometimes it's probably like a like a matte painting in the background. Other times it's just these practical set pieces. But like it's always so beautiful and classic, uh, and and just rugged. I I love it. It's just it's great. But uh, moving on from just art design, uh, do you have a favorite scene in this film? And and if so, what makes it so important to you? Hmm. You know, I think for me it is that that central sequence before we really get into the, the drive forward plot where now our three characters have collided. It's at that moment of collision, right? And so Penguin is about mm-hmm. to uh, begin his drive for mayor. First, he has to convince the city that they need a new mayor. And so a crime mm-hmm. spree has to take place. So the Red Triangle gang goes out, starts a riot. They're burning and blowing up shops at random. Batman, of course, arrives in the scene. He's immediately in the fray, taking on tens uh, of dudes at a time. And then they give you Selena. She's off doing her own thing, totally unrelated. And you get that great Shrek's department store sequence. She blows up the department store of her own volition. She's not a part of Penguin's Ride, but here our, our three characters really collide for the first time. And so that whole sequence from the beginning of the riot, where you see Batman get into the fray, to the end, where Catwoman falls off after her direct fight with Batman. You know, he acid burns her arm. She falls from a height mm-hmm. once again, this time to be saved by kitty litter as she calls it uh, uh that sequence for me totally works it really establishes the rhythm and the pace of the film going forward we understand um how these characters are connected and what they want from each other what about you i think my favorite scene is just that dance between bruce and selena just before the penguin uh comes crashing back in uh so i i might even be stealing some words out of your mouth i think this was a, a conversation i had with you um there are a million things I love about it, but I think part of it is just, you know, they're, they're obviously both beautiful people. They've got this magnetic connection, but they're both so uncomfortable and almost scared. And, and the thing that I think I'm stealing out of your mouth is like, they don't feel like themselves without the mask or the costume. Like they are trying to play a part and it's, it's really confusing them. It leaves a little more hope for a human connection uh, but to feel that raw chemistry, to see them slip back into the mistletoe line, to see the revelation, uh, you know, even before that, 
um, to just see Bruce Wayne having some really nerdy jealousy when he interprets uh, that Catwoman might be there romantically with Max Shrek and uh, you know, she starts laughing and and pulls out a gun, and and that that laughter has so much weight because of some of the other scenes we've already heard, right? Like this this frustration she has that her relationship with her boss is supposed to be sexualized. Now even 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 Bruce and his jealousy is doing some of that, but no, she's there mm. to kill him, and and you get you know I think I mentioned this in the summary, like you feel like there's a chance there's a happy ending for them or a happier ending. Maybe if, if penguin doesn't crash in uh, right there. Um, I know we talked about the sequence a little bit. Do you have any thoughts on that scene as well? Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad you mentioned it because I think there's, it happens here and then it's reflected again later, but first I just want to highlight mm -hmm. um, their chemistry, the closeness of their bodies while they're dancing, right? You totally believe the energy that's passing between these two people. And then when they realize that she is Catwoman and he is Batman, they cling just a little bit closer, mm -hmm. right? And she asks, do we have to fight now? And that gets me every time. It's both, it's it's adorable, it's tragic, it's funny. Um, it really works brilliantly. And I think, um, yeah, to your point, they could have a happy ending. You almost believe in these two crazy kids, if not for the penguin uh, crashing in, right? It'll happen again later she's at the manor for a date and they're having what is like a really classic holiday moment. They've tucked in by the fire. They're going to watch, you know, it's mm -hmm. not the Macy, it's not the Macy's day parade because it's not Thanksgiving, but it's a televised Christmas event in the big city. And they're going to tuck in to watch it until they see what's happening. And now they both have a reason and their alter ego goes to be there. So penguin once again, kind of crashed into this potential moment of uh human happiness that they had. Yeah. Uh, as much as they do have believable chemistry, you also see that discomfort in their own skins in that moment, because that was actually another one of my biggest laughs. Cause like, I think Bruce is technically still in the room with Selena when he is asking Alfred to make up an excuse for him. <laughs> like, uh, I'm going to have to go very suddenly. Can you please just tell her something? And, and, uh, this, this might actually be my, my memory lying to me, but I feel like you can actually see her in the back of the shot. That, if that's not true, it felt true to me while I was watching it. Um, and, you know, I, I guess Michael Keaton's not like our number one playboy Batman, uh, you know, because he, he does not have much game, this uh, this gentleman. but He's got zero game. <laughs> it stood out to me earlier in the film. When he first meets <laughs> Selena, do you recall the office sequence? Yes, yes. She walks in, and now the difference between her before is unfortunately in her now, her her unpretty, right, quote-unquote unpretty, yeah, unnoticeable yeah. self. She wore glasses, and of course her hair was much more conservatively pinned back. But sure. now she arrives with no glasses and really vivacious, curly hair. And uh, right, Mac, right. Mac Shrek is stopped in his tracks for different reasons, right? He's looking at a ghost. Sure. But Bruce Wayne, billionaire playboy Bruce Wayne, his jaw hits the floor. He is yep. fum fumbling over his words. He he uh, misspeaks uh, common phrases. She has to call him out on it. He forgets his jacket. He's an absolute mess in the face of this woman. And I, I don't think it's just her beauty in that moment. There's a, there's a clear darkness to her. There's something about her that's a little off. 
as she comes into that office and tells her story about whatever happened to her as a kid and her memory. And last night is a complete blur. Um, mm-hmm. I think he's very attracted to the crazy in her because there's a crazy in him. And to your point later when they're dancing, um, oh, anytime they're together as Bruce and Selena, there isn't the same comfort as when they're together as Batman and Catwoman because they're both more fully themselves when, in the, when, when they are in those alter egos. No, you're you're right. I mean, I was teasing their their first date sequence a minute ago, but there is some really great character stuff in there. Um, you know, they're when they're kind of trying to like yada yada away Batman's love interest from the the 1989 film. Uh, you know, he's just trying to explain it couldn't work out. He says there are two truths. She had trouble reconciling them because I had trouble reconciling them. I don't know if you've read any of the more modern Batman Catwoman. Uh, runs that they've had in some of the main titles at DC Comics. They had a wedding just a couple of years ago. It didn't quite go as you might hope, but I think firmly established now in DC canon, the future of our main Batman's timeline is one where he's married to Catwoman and they have at least a daughter. Um, I think we've remained fascinated with this, the wholeness they bring to each other. These two kind of broken creatures of the night, these two dark folks. Um, There's just something about putting them together that works the bat and the cat. And we've been fascinated with it for a long time. Do you have a favorite line or quote from this film? Yeah. I mean, mistletoe can be Mm -hmm. deadly if you eat it, but a kiss can be deadlier if you mean it. It's at the heart of the film. I think that penguin is just as brilliant as the character is. And as much as that villain is sort of the main villain of the film, he or Max Shrek, it's all just, plot devices to help drive the Batman and Catwoman story, in my opinion. And that quote really just perfectly encompasses um, the fraught nature of their relationship. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to start with a, a more serious one. And this is this final confrontation between Batman and Catwoman when he is pleading with her not to go through with this vengeance. Uh, He pulls off the mask and he says, we're the same split right down the center. And I think we've talked pretty extensively about the duality in Catwoman, in Penguin, in Batman. Um, indirectly, I think we even got there with Max Shrek, uh, with his his selfish motivations, yet his love for that big old oaf chip uh, that, you know, we can't help but love him too. And that that just cuts down to the thematic center of why this movie works, despite whatever whatever campiness that, you know, might have different value in the eyes of different people. Uh, there's something really thematically valuable going there. Um, I also cheated here because I also I could not help but pick like a couple of favorite just like dumb campy lines. And uh, number one for me uh, is just before Penguin dies. He's going to try to take Batman down with him. He goes to his uh, stand of umbrellas, his trick umbrellas. Uh, He pops it open to shoot Batman. And, you know, it just comes out beautiful colors, some little toys dangling from the edge, perhaps evoking his life as a child. But the the line from Danny DeVito is, oh, shit, I picked a cute one. (laughs) And and it's just phenomenal stuff. you know, I, I don't know if I specifically asked you to, to pick something silly, but do you have any just sort of goofball moments uh, or lines in the movie that stick with you? Yeah, man. Right after Oswald Cobblepot 
uh, goes through the whole charade of discovering who he is. He's in the, the library annals and he's examining records. He goes to the, the cemetery to see his parents' grave and then he's in front of the media. And they call him the penguin. And he says, a penguin is a bird that cannot fly. I am a man. And there's nothing more profound to it than that. He just really needs to set this standard straight that, in fact, a penguin is a bird that cannot fly. And he is, in fact, a man. There's no metaphor. There's no further poetic um, evolution of that thought. It's just the raw, silly statement. Absolutely. And just an honorable mention for me is uh, Michelle Pfeiffer trying to be the the unconfident version of Selena Kyle. And, uh, you know, when she keeps getting frustrated with herself and she says she calls herself a corn dog. What a corn dog that like three times <laughs> she says it to herself, corn, corn, corn dog. Like she's so upset with herself. You're right. Oh yeah, it's it's been seeping into into my vocabulary ever since. Um, love love it, love it, love it. All right, uh, I've got just a couple more questions for you. I've got another fun one, and you know, feel free to smuggle more than one item in here because this movie is so beautiful. You can't stop with just one. Uh, but if you could get your hands on one prop from this film, uh, what would it be? If you have thoughts about where you might display it or whatever, feel free to go nuts. Uh, but, but if you could get one thing or, or a few things, what, what might you go for? All right. The truth, the truest desire of my heart would be, how could it not be the Batmobile, right? Mm -hmm, It's, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of Batmobiles have come and gone since, For my money, the Keaton Batmobile is the perfect blend of sort of sporty speedster, Ferrari, Camaro-style vehicle, uh, and absolute Batman tech and wonder, right? That being said, I don't know where I would keep a Batmobile uh, if I had one, because if I had it, I would want the Batmobile. Um, (laughs) And I... More than garage space, I have closet space. So I think truly, if somebody gave me the option today, I'd want that bat suit head to toe, the mm-hmm. real deal, little armor in the front, a little more, more of me on the sides as Catwoman discovers. Uh, <laughs> I would absolutely walk into work on a Friday afternoon uh, in full full bat garb. You could just take the whole bat cave and then you've got plenty of room for that Batmobile, Chris. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Are we counting that as a prop? I did not do my research properly. What about you? What's 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 your go-to? I thought this would be a fun question, and then I had even more fun with it than I imagined. So I'm just I'm just gonna build my way up to number one. Uh I you know, like my first instinct was just a copy of those those campaign signs that you mentioned earlier. Such beautiful artwork. Uh I'd love to have one of those Oswald cobble pots. Uh, but then I was thinking, gosh darn it, that little like toy batmobile that penguin is bouncing around in in the back of a truck when uh, they remote control the Batmobile and they're trying to destroy Batman's reputation. What a fun art piece. Uh, You know, Penguin's Garage would be a wild place because similarly, his big rubber ducky type thing. uh, If I if I were to have a nice cavernous living room, you just just pop that duck in the corner, sit down, have a drink, chat with your friends and your big rubber duck. Uh, But in the true spirit of the exercise, if I've really got to narrow it down to one, I just want one of those little robot penguins with the little rocket strapped to the back. And that would just be like such a, a cool, cute little decoration to have in the background. 
um, year round. I mean, it's adorable. Uh, I, you know, I did not use any resources to confirm this story, but uh, the trivia on IMDb claims that at one point, one of the live penguins was found snuggling up with, with one of the robotic penguins. And uh, I really didn't want to research it because I'd hate to learn that that's not true. It's, it's beautiful and I can't blame that penguin. I'm not looking any further into it than this right now. I choose to believe that story as <laughs> gospel truth, and we'll leave it at that. For sure. Uh, now now that I've cheated so much, do you have anything else you want to throw on the list? Yeah, thank you for sending it back to me, because at least uh, an honor, honorable mention has to be, we highlighted it earlier, but the neon sign from Selena's apartment. I don't, I want it broken. I want it having once said mm-hmm. hello there, and now it says hell here. Um, that deserves a spot in my in my living room, at, at least in my house somewhere. And so mm-hmm. that's got to be an honorable mention. And then we did mention it earlier, too. But the remote control battering. Absolutely. Absolutely. Certainly would certainly wouldn't mind it. If someone's listening to this podcast, uh, they've probably seen Batman Returns before, uh, but it's possible it's just someone with a, a great interest in Batman. Uh, or perhaps uh, there's another parent out there. I mentioned before we're both parents. Um, you know, something I think about a lot is, you know, how can I convince my children to watch movies I love with me someday? Uh, so I just wanted to ask, what advice would you give to someone who is sitting down in 2024 to watch this film for the first time? Maybe they've seen uh, some more contemporary takes on Batman, but they've never gone back to the 90s. What recommendations would you give to this person? Ah, my gosh. I think you and I have both kind of played our hands already as far as our Mm -hmm. deep love for Catwoman and Michelle Pfeiffer's portrayal (laughs) of Catwoman in this movie. But honestly, outside of the performance, this film just gets so much right about that character and about that relationship to Batman. And so that would be the first thing I would want to try to tell somebody is that no matter what else you've seen, you've never seen the Catwoman character. This is... You've never seen her on screen if you've not seen this film. Um, Forget about Halle Berry's Catwoman, who I think really did die and then get resurrected by cats. Like, actually, that is definitively what the film is telling us happened. Um, Okay, I've not seen that one. I'm going to take your word for it. That sounds about right based on what I have heard of Catwoman. I don't think I've ever seen the whole thing either, but I'm fairly certain that is is true. Anne Hathaway is fantastic, don't get me wrong, but there's a little bit about the Nolan verse that for me is, um, it isn't quite Batman. It is a, it's a very real world interpretation of what all of those characters might look and feel like here in our world. I want more escapism in my Batman than that. And so despite that brilliant performance, really fun portrayal, that's not Catwoman for me. And that isn't the bat and the cat dynamic, not like it is here in this film. And so that, for me, has got to be the entry point. If you care about the Batman character at all, you must care about Catwoman, and this is where you'll find her. I I think that's absolutely beautiful, Chris. Yeah, I think I think I'd say something similar. Um, you know, I mentioned my love for Doctor Who earlier. I love a character that we can reinvent and see in different places and uh, times, portrayed by different people. And you know, Batman has a mythology that people love, and and you can get that. And I love the Christopher Nolan movies uh, for what they are. 
Um, they're incredible. Uh, many people will call them their favorite Batman movies. I think I'd have to do a wider Batman rewatch before I wanted to commit to what my favorite Batman is out there. Uh, but I think I just want people to know, like, this is not the grim, dark experience that you are used to. There is darkness here. There is complexity here. But this is trying to capture more of an old school comic book sort of vibe. Or or even myself as a child. I Even to this day, I am not very well read in comic books. Um, but I mentioned very close to the beginning of our conversation. I watched those 1960s, very silly, campy, bam, pow. Batman movies um and to just you know remember that this is a film that's in dialogue with that culture of Batman mm -hmm. and and it's pushing a different sort of boundary and if you can watch it for what it is appreciate that art um and and maybe even be on the lookout for some of the seeds it planted that allowed someone like Christopher Nolan to to go to this real grim realistic place um I think you're going to find that it's a work of art that's so brilliantly said. I'm glad you mentioned Adam West. I think uh, the 66 Batman sometimes gets the nostalgia nod, mm -hmm. but is, is often left out of the conversation for serious Bat media. And I don't think that's right. I think that that is a very core part of who the character is. And if, let's say, Zack Snyder, like, focused on one facet of the Batman as dark and brutal as he can be, Perhaps Adam West focused on one facet of the Batman as campy and silly as he can be. But this film really strikes that beautiful balance, right? It's like you took mm -hmm. maybe the animated series, smash it together with that old Adam West Batman, and you get this, this really fun film. I think that's really well said. Awesome. All right. Last question, Chris. Uh, I'm going to cheat and go first this time because I think I know your answer already, and I think it would be more appropriate to end on your answer. Uh, but... I mentioned earlier that, you know, this was just a series of home runs and grand slams for Tim Burton. Such a great creator. Um, you know, e even if we don't necessarily point to as much success in his more recent filmography, um, he's built up so much goodwill. It, it It's hard to be to be totally down on Tim Burton ever. Um, so the question is, how does this measure up to some other Tim Burton projects? Um I love this movie. I love this period of years. Um, you mentioned the miniatures, uh, the same vibe. I just love that thematically um, you've always got some kind of oddball trying and failing to integrate with society, but they always mean well. They're, they're really trying their best to do it. And they always fail. And this film's an excellent example, but I want to shout out um, my personal favorite Tim Burton movie uh, is a film called Ed Wood. Have you seen this film, Chris? Ed Wood, I've not. So, you know, unfortunately, this film stars an actor in Johnny Depp, who I'm, I'm not as interested in giving a lot of lip service to these days. Uh, but it's a phenomenal performance. It's uh, it's based on the real story of real-life film director Ed Wood, who at one time was voted uh, the worst film director of all time, uh, making really bad like B and C horror movies in the 1950s. Uh, you know, he famously sort of resurrected uh, Bella Lugosi, who had been out of work for a very long time, the, the famous Dracula actor. Um, yeah. Bella Lugosi is an addict at this point in life. He's desperate for money. 
and he agrees to be in these super weird, bad sci-fi movies, often strung together with stock footage uh, and bad actors. Uh, and this movie sets out to show Ed Wood putting together this, this found family and making these bad movies happen and loving them and being so proud of himself despite all of the flaws. Ed Wood, uh, you know, famously enjoyed cross-dressing. So, so kind of some of the dialogue around the clothing he's choosing and like the assumptions other characters start to make about other elements of his gender and sexuality haven't aged well. Uh, but I think it's hard not to watch the movie and know that it's well-intentioned, that it's made with love and it shows this found family coming together. And it even has some more of that miniature work. We've got some nice little camera shots through a graveyard and Anyway, it's a phenomenal one. And if, if you're out there and you love Tim Burton and you missed that one, it, it's a really great film. Now, Chris, turn it back to you, unless you have any Ed Wood questions. <laughs> no, but I'm so intrigued now. That was a really beautiful, beautiful pitch. Um, and you're right. Tim Burton loves an oddball. Johnny Depp, a little bit tougher to give lip service to today, but I'm really intrigued and I will check out Ed Wood. Tim Burton is certainly a director that I have enjoyed over the years. Um to your point, maybe his modern stuff isn't as celebrated, though I, I'm excited for him to get a second crack at Beetlejuice. Yeah, this film for me is easy top three Tim Burton films. It is absolute classic. It is, he's a creator. He is an artist at heart. So film happens to be the medium in which he works, but you can see how much he loves the craft. It's all in display in this film from those beautifully rendered sets, whether it's in the miniatures or real full-size backdrops, painted backdrops. Not the film score from Danny Elfman, right? You can just see, or previously the, the Prince soundtrack from the first film. You can see how much Tim Burton loves every aspect of the art that goes into making his movies. Um, it's all here in the Batman, in the Batman Returns. So while I, I do love Beetlejuice, and maybe he's the one oddball who doesn't mean well, Beetlejuice really is a bad guy. Uh, love that mm -hmm. film terrified me as a child i'm a big edward scissorhands fan um i don't know who gave uh anthony michael hall the ability or the permission to be a bully <laughs> really weird really weird choice um but i do i do love edward scissorhands um i just very recently introduced my daughter to some sweeney todd music oh there um, you go i'm very blessed with a uh, a slightly creepy four-year-old girl she, <laughs> she likes all things halloween um she similarly is Love into it. more of a a grim goodness like like sure, i am sure uh and so i was recently introducing her to a little bit of the music that came with uh tim burton's take on sweeney todd she knows um it, helena bottom carter's image yeah from harry, yep. harry from harry potter she's not been allowed to watch those films yet but she knows her image um sure so yeah, sure Love Tim Burton. I love the way he works. But for me, he's never more in his game than he is here in the Batman and in this era of filmmaking. Chris, thank you so much for coming on this Media Lit podcast. Um, this is the kind of conversation I just dream about having with people about media, because what I care about with media is what it means to us. And, uh, you know, I think we got to unlock uh, a lot of what we care about, what we value in movies and the world. Uh, it, it was just a perfect chat uh, for me. I had a fantastic time. So thank you so much. Randy, thank you so much for having me, man. This was a blast. It's also a conversation I dream of having. Uh, you don't get good old-fashioned nerd conversations in your everyday life. And uh, I'm glad we shared that love of media. I'm really grateful to have been here. Thanks, man. 
Awesome. Uh, before I head out, Chris, uh, if you have any interest in people finding you on social media, et cetera, I'd love to give you a chance to shout that out. Uh, and, or if you have any projects you want to mention, feel free, uh, where can folks find you? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for asking. Uh, folks can find me on Instagram at Chris underscore Ingersoll. Uh, I very recently had the opportunity to contribute to a short film project called Good, the Examination of an Accused Witch. It takes place here in Salem, Mass. I actually portrayed uh, one of my ancestors in the film, but the reason I'm so excited about it is the filmmakers that I worked with have invented this new technology attempting to merge uh, three-dimensional and two-dimensional media together. It's this new way oh, wow. we'll experience story. And so the production was really unique, but check, check it out on Instagram and IMDb. That should be a really exciting new step into the world of storytelling. I hope people will find Chris. Uh, he's a really good guy, really good follow. I, I think we're going to get more great things from him moving forward in the future. Uh, and before we head out, uh, I just want to say, if you're looking for me, you can find me on, uh, it's still called twitter.com. Uh, I'm at Mr. Underscore Elaine, A-L-L-A-I-N. Uh, I've got a link there to my Blue Sky profile, which is a social media service uh, that I've been having a good time on. Uh, and also you can, you can find me writing some TV recaps and uh, podcasting about Sting and the Police. Uh, on a podcast called Every Pod You Cast uh, over on the Pop Break today. Uh, so consider giving us a listen. Thanks again for being here for this conversation, and we'll see you next time.